and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Hello? Okay, so our gospel lesson today will be coming from John 20, 19 through 31. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds on his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. He said again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they will be forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hand, uh, put my fingers into them, and place my hand on the womb on his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and look at my hands. Put your hand on the womb on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord, O God, Thomas explained. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you, are, because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks, buddy. Good job. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this room. Thank you for these people. It is a joy to be with you today, and it's a joy to be with them today. And so I just pray that you would do as you have been doing for me all morning. Um, I pray that you would restore joy in us. Uh, I pray over the next few minutes that you would give us uh, the courage to look inside ourselves at things uh, you might want to say to us, um, maybe expose in us, or reframe or renew in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, So I'm curious if you have any experiences or stories about uh, asking the wrong question at the wrong time. Um, It is safe to assume that that is what I would call the story of my life, um, is asking the wrong question at the wrong time. Um, I've told this story before, but don't stop me because it's a good one. Um, But my kids are also, they've inherited this gene from me. Like, I think that's sort of a kid thing. Um, But my kid, it feels like a particular, like, Mizell kid thing to ask the wrong question 
question at the wrong time. My favorite um, is the story I want to tell you. Um, once when Campbell and Graham were little, like four-ish, uh, we were visiting my brother and his wife. They were living in Charlotte at the time. And by we, I mean like the whole family, like my whole family's there, my, my parents are there, uh, Molly, my sister-in-law, her parents are there. We're all there together and we're staying in this one um, really big house all together, which is so fun if you've ever done something like that. It is so fun. Um, and it's fun almost all the time. It's fun until the morning um, because in the morning when you have little kids who wake up so, so, so early, uh, even on vacation, um, you spend your morning just trying to keep them quiet, like you, you're bar you're threatening, you're bribing, you're doing anything in the world, just please be quiet. Um, and the house that we're staying in had dogs, and uh, we didn't, we don't have a dog, and my kids are obsessed with dogs, and so they wanted to spend their morning playing with the dogs. So now I'm like bargaining, bribing, and threatening four living things um, all at the same time, and it's so loud, but um, at one point, and, and they're, they're crazy because they don't know how to be with dogs, so they're like pulling the dog's ears and try to, one tries to ride one of the dogs like a horse, you know, it's just like a nightmare. And so one of the dogs like breaks off, like sprints away, probably uh, to spare his own life. And, and when he does, he runs into this guest bathroom and through this bathroom into the guest bedroom where my sister-in-law's parents are staying, David and Diane. So they're asleep in this room. This dog runs in the room. Uh, the other dog follows that dog. And then Campbell and Graham follow shortly behind, just bursting into these people's room uh, while they're dead asleep. No one is... Uh, is uh, uh, even thinking that someone might be asleep in there. And then I just hear my kids yelling at the dogs because, again, we don't have one, so they don't speak dog yet. So they just are trying to, like, um, use their, the authority of their voice in volume. And so they're just screaming, like, sit, stand, beg. You know, like any dog word they've heard, they're just screaming at these dogs uh, in this room. And so they don't have a choice. Like, do I just wait for it to settle down and them to come out? Or, or do I go in this room where people are asleep? You know, and so I walk in, and it is so unbelievable awkward because David and Diane are in bed. They have just, they were in like in their bed clothes, you know, like they have just sat up in the bed and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, come on guys. You know, suddenly I'm all nice and, and, and they are the literal nicest people you've ever met, um, in the world. And they're like, it's fine, it's fine, no worries. I'm like, it's not fine. So it takes forever, and I finally, like, rally everybody, and we're on our way out the door when Graham <laughs> looks at David, and he says, I have a question. And I say, absolutely not. He will not be taking... <laughs> He will not be taking any questions before nine o'clock on vacation. Like not happening. But again, David is the kindest. And he was like, no, 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 buddy. It's okay. What's your question? And then Graham says this. He says, how come you have hair on the sides of your heads, but you don't have any hairs on top? <laughs> he said, you've got like a lot of hair on the sides and no hairs on the top. And I want to know why that is. That's his question. And David just like looks at him so sweetly. But that's his question. I have wondered more than once as I've read this story uh, about Thomas, if this uh, moment um, in the life of Thomas and the disciples felt anything like what I felt in this moment where I'm watching an interaction of the person saying the exact wrong question at the exact wrong time, just like jaw dropped frozen uh, in the awkward of what felt like the wrong question. 
Uh, I want to look through this story together before we get to Thomas, because a few things happened um, before. So we're just going to kind of work our way through um, this story from the book of John. So at the beginning of our scripture that Josiah read to us today, we find the disciples uh, hiding and terrified uh, behind a locked door. John actually takes careful care to make sure that we know uh, that they are afraid and that that's why the doors are locked, that they're hiding behind them. And then John tells us that Jesus suddenly appears in this room, uh, which is bonkers. Like, I, I don't understand this at all, but John says he's just in the room, just like, peace be with you, and is in the room. And they're in this interesting place, the disciples, because they've just given up uh, their entire lives in order to follow Jesus. But then he dies. And so the faith that had been growing inside them um, was, was losing to the fear of the religious leaders who might do the same thing to, to them that they had done to him. And so uh, that's how we find them in this room. And so Jesus appearing suddenly, it has to surprise them and probably scare them and then at the same time comfort them. Because Jesus enters this room the way Jesus enters most rooms or, or in a very Jesus way. He walks not just into the room, but he walks into their lives as they actually are. He walks into their fear and into their sadness and into their hiding and into their confusion. Uh, not with advice or really a lot of answers or explanations to questions that I'm sure they're full of. They've got to have so many questions about his death and about his resurrection and, and what all of that means. But instead, he walks in the room and he says, peace, peace. It's a very Jesus thing to do, uh, to give them what they needed most in that moment, which wasn't so much answers, it was him. He, uh, he walks in offering himself in the name of peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, fills the entire room with it just by his presence. And then uh, John tells us he breathes his spirit onto them. Uh, his spirit of peace and power and hope. And he talks about forgiveness right after he does it. And I don't know where Thomas was during this party, uh, but he wasn't with them. And so at some point they're with Thomas and they're telling him what happened. Like we saw the Lord and he just appeared in the room. And, and, and John tells us that Thomas wasn't buying it, that he's not buying this, um, that he has doubts and questions. He says, I'm not going to believe that until I see him with my own eyes and I put my own hands into his wounds. And I really want to judge uh, Thomas for this, but I can't uh, because I'm very much that way. Like, I need to see and believe for myself. So Thomas, eight days later, John tells us, gets the chance. Uh, and it's the same situation. We have another locked room, and the guys are still hiding behind the lock. And this feels like an important thing to note because I could spend hours talking to you about all of the brave and incredible things that these uh, men do. Our, our entire religion was carried into the world on their shoulders because they're so brave and so incredible. But they also have plenty of moments where they're scared and plenty of moments where they're confused. And that feels really important to me. I don't know about you. So once again, they're in this room behind the locked door, and Jesus once again appears, and once again, that's bananas. I don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful to the story, but um, uh, it, it feels scarier to me. Whatever they're hiding from cannot be as scary as just a person appearing in a room. Like, that is my biggest fear all the time, like every night. But that, that was just for free. Um, but uh, they have... They, they, they have these moments. So Jesus, he does it again, appears in the room, and he has the same message, peace. 
Peace be with you. And then he looks at Thomas and he opens up his hands. I love this moment. He looks at Thomas and he opens up his hands. And I can't, I can't help but wonder what the other disciples felt like when they saw this happen. Like, I, I mean, I feel like I relate to it in the smallest way of, of watching the world's nicest man explain male pattern baldness to my four-year-old. You know, like, this is your future, buddy. Um, <laughs> like, I, I was just frozen by Graham's question, and, and I was waiting to, like, scold him or for David to scold him. Um, but David, uh, uh, I was surprised by his kindness in answering this question. I, I pictured the disciples this way. A frozen stare waiting for Jesus to scold Thomas uh, for his lack of faith. But that's not what happens. Or at least John doesn't record it. Jesus, Jesus doesn't scold Thomas and he, he doesn't shame him. And I think that that is so curious because when I read it, when I get to that part, I kind of, I'm kind of anticipating that happening. I kind of expect that to happen. In the church, uh, Thomas is, is most often remembered for being a doubter. And not like memorialized in the hero sense. Like Thomas feels like a warning to the church, like doubting Thomas. For example, when I was reading the text this week, uh, studying for today, I forgot that Thomas was a twin. Like I totally forgot because in the scriptures, Thomas's nickname is Thomas the twin. But in church history, Thomas's nickname is Doubting Thomas or Thomas the Doubter. He has this nickname that sticks for 2,000 years. There are nicknames I've tried to kill after like 20 minutes. 2,000 years, this name sticks, and it's a nickname that separates him from everyone else. It's a nickname that separates him from faith or belief and the rest of his pack. But it's interesting to me that while the church has separated Thomas uh, from faith, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't separate him at all. He does for Thomas exactly what he did for all of the others eight days before. He holds out his hands and he lets him see and touch and believe. He doesn't appear disappointed or hurt. He doesn't scold him for doubting. In this moment, Jesus doesn't shame Thomas. He honors him. Thomas asks to see and touch and Jesus honors that request. And I don't know about you, but so often I have felt like my doubts and my questions and the places where I struggle to believe all of this, I have felt like these are the things that keep me from God's presence. Like I would feel closer to God if I didn't have so many questions or if I didn't have so many struggles or doubts, but that isn't what we see here at all. We actually see the exact opposite. Because in his questions and in his doubts, Jesus gives Thomas more access to him, not less. He doesn't put his hands in his pockets. He holds them out. He lifts his shirt up, which I think was like a dress. You know, I mean, he's like, here, look. Jesus doesn't walk away from Thomas. He walks toward him. He allows Thomas the room to wonder and the room to question and the room to discover for himself. Uh, Mike Iaconelli, a a, a writer I love that passed away years ago, he says, Jesus is honoring Thomas's holy curiosity. I love that phrase. How very kind of Jesus to make room for a holy curiosity. It makes uh, a lot of sense to me why Thomas uh, would need to see and feel Jesus's wounds. uh, Because like Thomas, it's the wounded places where I tend to doubt God's presence the most too. Anybody else? Uh, 
This week, a precious friend of mine who's my age got diagnosed with a stage three cancer, and it's a really difficult situation. That's a place of doubt for me. We keep seeing pictures from Israel and Gaza. That's a place of doubt for me. My own traumas and triggers that never seem to go away. These are my doubting places. So I get why Thomas needed to stick his hands into the wounds of Jesus. Why he needed the chance to feel with his own hands what the pain and suffering of the world had done to his dear friend. To to know for himself that Jesus wasn't sweeping all pain and all suffering and all fear and all struggle underneath a rug. It seems to me that Thomas needed to touch the wounds of Jesus in order to know in a deeper way that Jesus doesn't look away from the pain of the world. He doesn't sweep it aside or put it away. He bears it. And there was proof. Jesus allowed Thomas to see and feel the proof that he would bear his questions, that he would bear his suffering. Uh, This isn't the only place in the scriptures that we see uh, Jesus honoring a holy curiosity in someone. It it, it happens in all sorts of other places. And and, in fact, there don't seem to be any questions that are out of bounds with Jesus. Uh, Here we have Thomas doubting the resurrection, like the whole thing our faith hinges on. And Jesus makes room for Thomas to discover this in a deeper way. If that question is not out of bounds, then... All throughout the gospel, we see that when your curiosity leads you to Jesus, there aren't any wrong questions. But we also see, maddeningly, that there also aren't always answers. Uh, Jesus answers Thomas in the same way he answers his friends in a way that I think is actually Jesus' favorite way of answering. Rather than answering with words, he offers him more of himself. Most often, Jesus' replies aren't with words, but with presence. Uh, Thomas, he doesn't end up with less of Jesus because of his doubts. He ends up with something far more intimate. Uh, John tells us that uh, Thomas, with his hands on Jesus' wounds, cries out, My Lord and my God. Uh, The Hebrew for this is Adonai Eli. Uh, We see this phrase in the Psalms like 40 times. Uh, It's an endearing phrase and an intimate phrase. It's essentially translated, my dearest, my dearest. It's like a phrase of gushy intimacy, like what your parents say to each other when you get embarrassed. Like that kind of phrase, like this gushing phrase. Jesus makes room for Thomas to touch his wounds, and and Thomas experiences a depth and a love beyond anything that he has ever experienced. And so he gushes, my dearest God. In many ways, I think our doubts uh, expose in us what we care most about and what's most important to us. I think that's why his exclamation is so big. Uh, Because we don't doubt things we don't care about, right? This is why cold feet before you get married is a thing. It's also why you're 100% sure that you took the wrong job or picked the wrong college or bought the wrong car. As soon as you sign the line, you're like, "Uh uh-oh. Because we don't doubt things that we don't care about. Paul Tillich calls uh, doubt the consequence of the risk of faith. Doubt, it's not the opposite of faith. It's one of the gateways into it. We're on a streak uh, quoting C.S. Lewis. Here's what he has to say about it. He says, if ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, then we were believing what was clearly not worth believing. But if doubt is answered, our faith grows stronger. 
It knows God more certainly, and it can enjoy God more deeply. It knows God more certainly, and it can enjoy God more deeply. Uh, I try uh, not to talk about things on stage that I haven't actually lived out. Sometimes I do. Usually it shows. Um, but, um, but I try not to. Um, but this doubt uh, today, uh, this is one of the parts of faith I sometimes feel most familiar with. Um, and I want to tell you uh, part of that. Most of you or a lot of you uh, know the story, but I was telling some friends part of it earlier this week, and I just couldn't quit thinking about it as I was, as I was writing. But um, for as, as long as I can remember, uh, I have believed that Jesus came to put all things back to right, and that when Jesus came that he began God's good work of renewal everywhere. And also, as long as I can remember, I have believed uh, that there's still evil in the world and that it wreaks havoc on our humanity. It wreaks havoc on our world and, and our experiences and health and happiness and hope and wholeness. And that because of that, sometimes people get sick. They sometimes get really, really sick. And I have all kinds, and, and I have for a long time, had all kinds of theology around that. And like faith for healing, but also theology if it doesn't happen. And, and I've always really felt good about my belief in that. But then I got sick, and it changed. Uh, this was years ago, uh, but I got really sick, and no one could figure out what was wrong with me. And so I spent years and years and years uh, without a diagnosis in so much pain, feeling like an actual crazy person. Some of you guys can relate to this. Um, I spent a lot of time in hospitals and doctor's offices. I saw every kind of medical and or spiritual practitioner that we could find. Doctors, chiropractor, chiropractors, physical therapists. I tried Reiki, healing prayer, all kinds of wacky supplements. Um, if you're ever at Apple Tree and you're like, I wonder what this is, call me. I've probably taken it at some point in time. Um, diets, I, I, I tried everything, but nothing helped. In fact, I just kept getting worse. And I kept getting sicker. And one night I found myself in a hospital room uh, all alone and I finally had the courage to say to God uh, what had been in me but I had been too afraid to say uh, for a long time. And I just remember praying out and I just said, how dare you? How dare you? Like, you could heal me? I believe that. And you're just not. Like, you're just choosing not to. And I learned about a God of love, and that doesn't match this. So either you're not real or you're mean. And this next season of my life, after saying that out loud for the very first time, um, I just started to call the rumble. Uh, because I just rumbled and wrestled with God over and over and over again. And in that rumble, uh, my doubt exposed what I cared most about in that season, which was my health. And with that uh, came an idol. And the idol for me was this. The idol was that I could only believe in a God who worked the way I expected or wanted him to work. So for years we rumbled with this. I want you to do this and God is not doing it. Uh, it wasn't easy because what we talked about walls a few weeks ago. Walls are never easy, but, but I didn't give up. And more importantly, God didn't give up. And then at some point along the way, I found uh, my doubt answered with this epiphany um, that has become like a maxim in my life. And this is, what it, uh, this is what it is. My circumstances do not change the nature and character of God. 
After months and months and months of rumbling, this is where I landed. My circumstances do not change the nature and character of God. I couldn't find anywhere in the Bible uh, where, or in history where a person's circumstances change the nature and character of who God is. We, we see it in Jesus. Uh, circumstances change, and yet he remains steady and full of love and mercy and grace and truth. Uh, Jesus changes circumstances. Circumstances don't change Jesus uh, and who he is. And so for me, this epiphany was my way through this wall because the goodness of God was no longer dependent on my health or anyone else's health. And that's a really easy sentence for me to say today, but it about took me out 20 years ago. My doubt wasn't the opposite of faith. My doubt was my way into it. It was my teacher. It was my gate into a deeper view of the unchanging goodness of God. And the faith that was birthed out of that season, out of that realization, it held and it held and it held for years. No matter what happened, it held. And then when he was a tiny baby, Huck got sick. And every single thing that I had learned about God's goodness not being dependent on circumstances or health flew out the dang window. Because he was my boy. And he was so tiny and he was so sick. And he had this heart condition that was just like wreaking havoc on his body. And and so when he's barely a year old, we go to Vanderbilt to have surgery to fix his heart. And it's the six-hour surgery. And we go meet with the surgeon like four hours in. And he tells us it doesn't work. And it's not fixed. Uh, He was too little and the surgery was impossible to do on him. And so instead of fixing him, they put this uh, heart monitor into his chest. It was like this big bump in his tiny little chest. And the night after that surgery, in the wee hours of the night, in yet another hospital room, which is apparently where I get brave enough to tell God what I really think, uh, I ran my fingers over that bump, and I cried out the same prayer as years before. How dare you? Except this one had a lot more bowling words in it. I covered his ears too. How dare you? dare you. Sometimes life feels like a big cycle of learning and unlearning and relearning the same things over and over and over again. I was uh, reading my journals this week from that season of life, and I found that, that I had found myself in Mark chapter 5, where a man come, named Jairus, he comes to Jesus um, because his daughter is sick, and he's asking for Jesus to heal his kid. And it makes sense to me that that would be a story I claimed during that season of my life. And while they're walking toward Jairus' house, uh, one of his servants comes and tells, uh, gives Jairus word that his daughter has died. And so Jairus kind of looks at Jesus like, well, she's gone anyway. And Jesus says the craziest thing to him. He looks at Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, just have faith. I used to read that uh, as a warning from Jesus telling Jairus not to doubt. Don't be afraid, don't doubt. But after what we've talked about with Thomas, I don't think I read it that way anymore. Doubt and questions, they are part of friendship with Jesus or with anyone. And doubt, I keep saying, is not the antithesis of faith. It is not the enemy of faith. It is often a gateway into it. And so these days, what I think that Jesus meant when he looked at Jairus and said uh, not to be afraid and to have faith, I think what he was saying is don't be afraid, but keep on walking. Keep walking towards your girl. Keep walking. Don't let this story of your belief end in this moment. Keep walking towards your fear and keep walking into your faith and into the world. 
And I think Jesus is promising in this uh, to be with Jairus as he walks, to be found by Jairus as he walks, to allow room for the holy curiosity of Jairus to explore as he walks. I know that was true for me. I, I wrote this in, in my journal the night that Huck was in the hospital. I said this. For the next four years, my son will have a bump in his chest. It will get harder to see as he changes and grows. But one layer down under his pale skin will sit a reminder of the God who knit his heart together, who drew us in and who rescues even us. A reminder that I will see every morning as I dress my boy to offer the invitation into a life of adventure, just as he did to Jairus. Don't be afraid, just have faith. Uh, It was true. I saw that bump every day for four years. And many days, uh, I ran my fingers over that bump as angry as I was that night, doubting and questioning and rumbling. And some days, I ran my finger over that bump with gratitude like an Ebenezer of the faithfulness of my dearest and unchanging God. And those days started to get a little bit more frequent than the angry days. And just like uh, C.S. Lewis said, my doubts were answered in the presence. My faith grew deeper, and so did my enjoyment of the God who met me there, who brought me his presence and his peace and my questions and my doubting. The God whose nature and character does not change because my circumstances do. Sometimes the things that we are most sure of take a lifetime to learn and a lifetime to unlearn and a lifetime to relearn over and over and over again. Uh, We spent the last week talking about seasons like this, wilderness seasons, Um, And we've done that because we wanted to create some room this fall to acknowledge and honor that we have seasons like this. And so maybe you're here and you relate to that. Maybe you feel like your questions outnumber the things that you're sure of. Uh, I was thinking this week, I have a friend who um, one time on an envelope, she wrote down every single thing she believed and she would just carry it around because her life felt like she couldn't remember and she would just look at this envelope. Maybe you've been taught to hide your doubt uh, from God rather than to use it as a tool for faith. Uh, Maybe you're in a wall or a rumble, and so we just want to take time uh, to honor that season. Because just like that room, we believe that Jesus will honor it, and we also believe that he's present here. And so we want to make some space for the Holy Spirit to speak to you uh, however he will. We call it Selah. Uh, It's just for us a quiet and holy pause to not move on too quickly from whatever it is we're considering. And so I want to leave space for you to consider. Um, And then listen, I want to talk to a specific group of people also. Maybe you're here and you're not in a wilderness season at all. And you're like, why do they spend so many weeks here? (laughs) Like like maybe your faith is just like overflowing. And and so here's what I want to say to you. If that is not your season, if you are not in a wilderness season, um, would you consider using this time uh, each week while we stay in the wilderness, would you consider using this time to bless people in the room who whose faith is not overflowing. 
Um, I'm actually going to teach on this in a few weeks about um, uh, the the blessing season uh, of our lives. But but I'm wondering if you would if you would take some time uh, to pray for them. Sometimes the gift of being in the land of milk and honey, to use Bible words, uh, the gift of being in the land of milk and honey is to bless those who are wandering in the wilderness. And so that's what Jesus does. Jesus enters the room and he blesses peace over it. So that feels like a very good thing. So if if you don't relate to any of this wilderness stuff, would you use some time and just like bless peace for this room? Um, It feels like a good thing to pray for you, that God would bless the people around you and in this room with peace. So uh, I'm just, I'm going to get off stage. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to get off stage and we're just going to take a few minutes and be quiet. There'll be some verses on the screen. Um, We'll just allow the Holy Spirit to do what he does. So, God, who is not afraid of our questions, and God, who is not afraid of our doubts, I ask that you would give us the courage to see ourselves as we really are. Uh, Here, we believe that when we offer things to you, you take them and you bless them. And so we ask you to do that with our doubts We ask you to do that with our questions. We ask you to do that with our struggles and our pains and our traumas and our wilderness seasons. Will you take these and will you bless them with peace? And I thank you that this room uh, is filled with people in a season like that. Reminders that we are not alone in the wilderness. We do not walk alone. And at the same time, I thank you that this season is filled with people who aren't, who are like overflowing with milk and honey. And I thank you that they are reminders that this will not always be true. And so in these moments, we ask your spirit to come, to speak to us, to offer us peace. In your name we pray, amen.